The poem is fairly flowery, written in the mold of 19th century verse, which had a tendency toward hyperbole and exultation, though to be fair that doesn't differentiate it much from a lot of poetry to begin with. The first stanza of it reads, O Arizona, sun-kissed land, the day of birth is near at hand. Upon thy mountain rugged crest, thy native sons still call thee blessed. Within thy valley's broad domain, in love thy foster children reign. Fair land of gold and sunny peace, of flower and vine and rich increase, of cloud-kissed hills and wooded wold, of countless mines and death untold. And that's followed by the chorus. Hail, all hail to Arizona. Sound her praise from sea to sea, land of sun and summer showers, land of grain and gold and flowers, in Columbia's diadem, of jewels rare, thou'd be the gem. Hail to Arizona, the sun-kissed land. Those poetic words were penned in the latter half of the 19th century by one of the first families to set up shop at a place called St. Joseph, which we know today as Joseph City near Holbrook. But for as praisingly optimistic as the poem is, life was anything but easy for the early members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints who tried to make it their home. That is evidence in the fact that St. Joseph, where this poem was written, was the only surviving settlement of four that tried to claim this sun-kissed land. And even then, its survival was a very hard-fought thing. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, the History of Arizona. Episode 80, Little Oasis in the Desert. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we started talking about the initial forays of Mormon settlers into Arizona, led by the buckskin apostle Jacob Hamlin. We also covered the foundation of Lee's Ferry, which was a crucial Colorado River crossing for anyone trying to get from here to there in the northern reach of the territory. And now that the ferry is established, it's time to talk about the initial and only slightly successful settlements the Mormons set up along the little Colorado River. Now, I want to impress upon you before we begin that these were not, I repeat, not your typical pioneer settlements. That is to say, they were not founded by wagon trains of companies out searching for a prosperous new place to settle in upon seeing the little Colorado River Valley knew that this was the place they wanted to try and pull crops from the land. It was quite the opposite, really. Many had the experience of Joseph Hill Richards, a member of the church who had established a life and farm for himself and his family in Utah's Cache Valley. And then in January 1876, Apostle Joseph F. Smith and Bishop William B. Preston came to the area, and during the regular Sunday church services, called upon Richards and his family to up and move to Arizona. In similar fashion, in 1877, Brigham Young himself told William Flake to sell everything he owned and move southward as well. And so it was for many of those who tried their hand at selling in Arizona. It wasn't by their own choice, but rather out of religious conviction that men of God had called them to go far to the south. And given what they went through, you get the feeling that the only reason they stayed was because of those religious convictions. 
Richards in particular wrote that he knew that for years, church leaders had been calling families to head to the area of St. George, called Utah's Dixie because of the cotton-growing opportunities, but that many had turned back because they found it hard going. And now his call was to a rougher spot even further south. Many also had the experience of leaving behind beautiful, prosperous farms that they had built up for years. Richard recorded that he was leaving an estate worth about $1,350, which, if I have calculated this correctly, is a little over $35,000 in today's money. But now I'm getting ahead of myself, because Richards and his company were not the first to receive such a call. Three years earlier, in 1873, a first group of some 250 members were sent to the Little Colorado River Valley to start up settlements there. This group traveled under the command of a man named Horton D. Haight, and after crossing Atlee's Ferry and staying with the friendly Hopis at Moenkopi, arrived at their destination in May, quote, in the teeth of a blinding sandstorm, in the words of historian Thomas Sheridan. These settlers were not that impressed with what they found at first glance. And after taking several days to explore the area, they still didn't like what they found. One Norwegian convert to the church who had been called to settle in Arizona described the landscape as, quote, It is the same thing all the way. No place fit for a human being to dwell upon. No rock for building, no pine timber within 50 or 75 miles of here. Wherever you may look, the country is broken up. The most desert-looking place that I ever saw. Amen. End quote. Is it any wonder that this first attempt at colonizing the Little Colorado lasted less than a month? The company decided it was better to head back to Utah. Upon hearing this, Brigham Young urged him to go back, vowing that he would come and settle the place personally if he had to. This pronouncement caused one member of the hate party to quip that the settlers, quote, would not stay if Brigham Young should come with Jesus Christ himself, end quote. Despite this setback, church officials were still keen to eke out a claim in northern Arizona. Part of this was because they kept receiving reports from here and there that the little Colorado River Valley was a great place to raise crops and build up a colony. While in reality, it was a windswept place high on the Colorado Plateau that averaged less than 16 inches of rain a year, but as impractical as settling there sounded, there were two real reasons to give it a go anyway. The first was because, as you can probably imagine from the description I just gave you, there was no one else living there. The Mormons, who always seemed to live in conflict with their neighbors in the 19th century, preferred a spot where they could just be left alone to farm and live their religion. The second had to do with those religious convictions again. Mormon leaders and the families they sent were sure that if they worked hard, worshipped right, and had faith, God himself would temper the elements in their favor and help them to succeed. We find a lot of these mentalities in a speech given shortly after the failure of the hate expedition by George Q. Cannon, who was a counselor to Young. He said, quote, If there be deserts in Arizona, thank God for the deserts. If there be wilderness there, thank God for the wilderness. When we go hence to extend our borders, we must not expect to find a land of orange or lemon groves, a land where walnut trees and hard timber abound, where bees are wild and turkeys can be had for the shooting. 
But if we find a little oasis in the desert where few can settle, thank God for the oasis, and thank him for the almost interminable road that lies between that oasis and so-called civilization. End quote. So, in 1876, the church decided to try again, calling 200 people to leave their homes in Utah and head southward. For the people who lived it, there seemed very little to thank the Almighty for. Just getting to Arizona was incredibly rough. Richards wrote about how his family had to contend with snow that was two and a half feet deep near Penguage, Utah, and before crossing at Lee's Ferry, he had to pay $7 for the last bag of grain because grass for his livestock was already growing thin. Once in Arizona, he reported on finding, quote, barely good water at Navajo Springs, while the waters at the next stop, a place called Bitter Seeps, poisoned his horse. For the Flake family, which made the trip the following year, it wasn't that much better, as a diphtheria epidemic spread from watering hole to watering hole across the Kaibab Plateau, eventually striking the family as well. Though they eventually recovered, Lucy Flake, William's wife, recounted how one mother found her baby had died while she had been driving a wagon out of the mountains. Just to be fair, though, it wasn't like everyone's experience was a wrenching ordeal. Lois A. Smith Bushman, who traveled to Arizona in 1878, recounted how they often had to depend on the water found in the holes in the rocks, but that they found, quote, perfect water at Navajo Springs. In a tone that's a lot more chipper than most accounts, she would write, quote, It was a wonderful journey in spite of the hardships. Every day revealed new surroundings with beautiful and, at times, very strange scenery. End quote. Can anyone else hear Bill Murray from Groundhog Day right now saying, Gosh, you're an upbeat lady. But let's get back to that 1876 group. After arriving at the Little Colorado River near its junction with the Puerco River, they founded four colonies, Sunset, Obed, Brigham City, and what was at first called Allen's Camp, but later St. Joseph. Allen's Camp, named after leader William Allen, would actually move to a better spot three miles to the west a couple months later in the continuing struggle to find a good place to land. I want to note how lonely these places were. The first-hand accounts I have speak about how the nearest glimpses of civilization were either up at Kanab, Utah, or Albuquerque, New Mexico, which was only a mere, you know, 250 miles away. People traveling to and from the area were infrequent, unless they were Amerindians, while maybe two or three times a year a Hispanic wagon train on its way to Albuquerque would roll by. When she arrived at St. Joseph in December 1878, Lois Bushman found a fort erected there that contained 19 or 20 families, and she went on to describe it as, quote, The rooms were small, and the walls of many neatly papered with newspapers and a few homemade scatter rugs over the beautiful new white pine lumber floors. Curtains draped the windows, and usually a few pictures adorned the walls. Very comfy and homelike, each family had their own apartment and cooked separately. End quote. Of course, that's Bushman's account, and she seems to have found joy in practically everything. When Joseph Hansen, a Danish man called to live in St. Joseph, married his second wife, Emma, in 1881, and brought her to the colony from Utah, she is said to have burst into tears when she first saw her new home. 
And by her own account, it took a long time for Emma to first become reconciled with and then later finally content with the place that would be her home the rest of her life. Now, part of that might have been because a lot of the burden of simply living on the frontier fell on the women's shoulders. Their day-to-day lives make my back ache just thinking about it. Lucy Flake would rather tersely write, quote, I will just write my morning chores. Get up. Turn out my chickens, draw a pail of water, water hotbeds, make a fire, put potatoes to cook, and then brush and sweep half an inch of dust off the floor and everything, feed three litters of chickens, then mix biscuits, get breakfast, milk besides work in the house, and this morning had to go half mile after calves. This is the way of life on the farm. End quote. And remember, those are just the morning chores. Emma Hansen recalled that her chores included washing clothes by hand on a washboard and wringing out the suds from soap that she made herself from meat scraps and home-rendered grease. Ironing was done the old-fashioned way, where a literal block of iron would be heated on the wood-fed stove and then used to smooth clothes, a job that would have been the worst during the middle of an Arizona summer. Added to all of this was the cleaning of stoves and oil lamps, the chopping of wood, the literal making of mattresses, which included stuffing in new straw every year, polishing shoes using soot, then repairing those same shoes by hand, the making of quilts, cutting alfalfa for the animals, hauling milk, collecting eggs, churning butter, and working in the garden. We also learned from Emma that worn-out clothes would be cut into strips, those strips dyed, then sewed together, and rolled together into a ball. And when someone got married, those strips would be turned into colorful rugs and often given away as marriage gifts. Of course, that just added to the chores list, as twice a year those rugs would have to be taken outside and beaten, and the floors underneath scrubbed and new straw padding for the carpets added. And I'm sure I'm forgetting a good dozen or so other chores that were not just to make a house into a comfortable home, but ensuring a family's survival. I often wonder exactly how quickly I would have died if I had been born during this time. And what, you may ask, were the menfolk doing while the women were keeping everyone alive? Well, they were making the best go they could at harvesting crops from the land. We learned from Lois A. Bushman's account that the settlers, much like the Amerindians before them, discovered the climate was good for farming corn, beans, and squash, as well as melons, though at this time getting potatoes to grow was for some reason incredibly difficult. And luckily a dairy was established in 1878 about 60 miles west of Sunset, which is roughly 30 miles southeast of modern Flagstaff, which supplied good quality cream cheeses and butters to the colonies. But agriculture in Arizona was never as simple as it was elsewhere, and that held especially true of the little Colorado River. Hansen, the Danish immigrant, described it like this, quote, Bringing water to the choking land from the unpredictable little Colorado River was ever a challenge. Sometimes the water was low and shallow. Sometimes the stream was red and swollen with silt-filled floodwaters. The heavy red water was not good for the farms. When used for irrigation, it covered fields with an impenetrable clay. Often these angry flash floods ruthlessly tore away pioneer dams, leaving nothing in their onward course, but discouragement and the wasted effort of hard-pressed colonizers. End quote. 
His wife recalled that in the early days, getting dams up and running along the river was a prime concern, with men often spending weeks at a time at the construction sites, while women would occasionally go up to help cook for them. Early state historian James H. McClintock, in his summary of these early Mormon colonies, described the little Colorado as, quote, a treacherous stream at best, with a broad channel that wanders at will through the alluvial country that melts like sugar or salt at the touch of water, end quote. Then there was the flooding, 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 and more flooding. According to McClintock, the first dam near St. Joseph and Obed cost the settlers the equivalent of $5,000 and a total of 960 man days, while an additional 500 man days of work went into building an irrigation ditch at St. Joseph. But that dam did not survive the year, as the first time the river flooded, it raised up about 12 feet and took it completely out. So in 1877, the settlers tried again, about a mile and a half upstream, but another flood destroyed it. In 1879, they tried at a third site, but with the same results. Sheridan writes that between 1876 and 1884, the dam at St. Joseph would be rebuilt no less than five times, and puts the cost at 9,000 man days and 3,000 team days worth of work. I don't know about you, but as I write this in my head, I'm hearing that bit from Monty Python and the Holy Grail about the man who built his castle in the swamp. In 1894, one person remarked that St. Joseph was, quote, the leading community in pain, determination, and unflinching courage in dealing with the elements around them, end quote. McClintock shares the anecdote that in that same year, 1894, the current dam, which had to be repaired perennially, was replaced by what was the eighth one to span the river. At its dedication, the prayer was simply, quote, O Lord, we pray that this dam may stand if it be thy will. If not, let thy will be done. End quote. Apparently, God took pity on the settlers because this dam was still standing more than 20 years later when McClintock was writing his history. Now, please remember that the taking out of these dams was more than just an inconvenience or a large money sink. They represented their very lives and survival. As Joseph Richards reported after the first summer flood in 1876, provisions grew incredibly scarce and no crops could be raised that season. But believe it or not, flooding was not the only runaway bit of nature these pioneers had to deal with. Reading through the primary sources, we find that they were also forever plagued with great windstorms that would blow blinding sand all around. Both Lois Bushman and Emma Hansen make a point of mentioning these frequent storms and their effects. Bushman wrote, quote, The northern part of the territory of Arizona was noted for its terrific winds and sandstorms in the springtime. It seemed that the wind blew most of the time, but when a sandstorm came, it began at sunrise, increased in velocity until the sunset, after which all was calm and quiet with a fatigued, uncanny, expectant sensation until the next day at sunrise. Those sandstorms always lasted three days. It was impossible to work outside and everyone sought shelter. Father frequently made brooms for the community during such storms. Great sandbanks would be drifted, much like snowdrifts. The sand had to be cleared away from the door with a shovel. Those harsh, dry winds were especially trying on the eyes. There were many whose eyes were injured permanently. End quote. 
From Hansen, we get, quote, These vicious spring winds were the worst feature of northern Arizona's climate. The wind would come at frequent intervals, lasting for three days before it wore itself out. Sometimes at sundown, there was a lull in its vigorous cowlings, but next morning, with the sun peeking through dusty skies, the world was greeted by the wind's unwelcome and strong complaints. Sometimes there was no abatement through the night, and disheartened settlers viewed an earth that looked hard, dry, and forsaken. The wind boisterously swept the desert floor, rolling up sand dunes which moved across the barren landscape. Dust devils would rise up from the dry land, spiraling rapidly through the air, coming on to rest somewhere in yonder hills. End quote. Emma also told the story of the time her husband was working on a dam, but was chosen to stay at the site and guard the animals while the rest went to Sabbath services. She and her children joined him, but a fierce wind kicked up. Her husband had to run after the animals that had broken free, while Emma and her children were forced to hole up in a wagon after their tent blew over. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, the one thing that really kept these communities going was their common faith, and that tended to play into all the aspects of community life. Louis Bushman described that at the Fort in St. Joseph, they would gather together in the evenings at the sound of a bugle or some other instrument that was found where they would be led in the singing of a hymn and prayer before everyone retired to their homes. A church historian at the settlement elaborated on this by describing that they would also gather in the mornings, where they would start the day with a hymn, a prayer, and some remarks by a leading church elder. Although they did not do this in St. Joseph and other communities, the settlers would actually eat their meals at a common table. But nothing encapsulated the Mormon desire to pull together in participation in the experiment called the United Order. So ever since the time of the Bible, every now and then we get a Christian group that wants to try to live according to the passage in Acts that says that the early saints right after the time of Christ lived together with all things in common. One notable example from the U.S. is the United Society of Believers in Christ's Second Appearing, who were commonly known as the Shakers. Joseph Smith had attempted to implement his own version of communal living, but various problems such as internal strife and outward persecution ensured this never got off the ground. In Utah, notable examples of a new attempt, called the United Order, were started up at places such as Brigham City, north of Salt Lake, and the delightfully named Orderville, north of Kanab. Now, Sheridan explains that there were actually four levels of communal activities that fell under the all-encompassing term of the United Order, ranging from simple cooperatives to so-called family living where everyone shared property, labor, and proceeds. McClintock writes that, while sometimes confused as a church-wide mandate, it was actually implemented haphazardly with only tacit support but not outright approval from the church. Implementation of communal living was done on an ad hoc basis, depending on a settlement's unique circumstances, and each place tried it just a bit differently. And also, McClintock, who was writing during the era of the first Red Scare in America, shows his biases a little bit when he is very clear in stating that the ideals of the United Order were far from European-style communism and socialism of his day, and that everyone was expected to labor for what they received. When Mormon colonizers came to Arizona, they brought the idea of the United Order with them across the territory, including for brief periods at Lehigh and Mesa. Up along the Little Colorado River, where life, as we have seen, could be incredibly harsh, 
all four colonies adopted it, going with the communal family-style arrangement. Allen's camp, the future St. Joseph, voted to adopt the United Order in April 1877, with property being appraised and labor assignments handed out in coming months. We do get some very early reports from these first couple years that the order was really bringing people together despite the harsh conditions. A church historian in St. Joseph wrote, quote, Peace, harmony, and brotherly love characterized all the settlers at Allen's camp from the very beginning, end quote. Another source quoted by McClintock wrote in 1878 that the United Order seemed to be working harmoniously and prosperously. Now, even though the full communal family living style was implemented across all four settlements, it took different forms depending on which settlement you were in. As I mentioned, settlers at St. Joseph did not eat at a communal table like they did in Sunset and Brigham City. Also, at Sunset, no wages were paid because, in theory at least, each individual worked according to their ability and received goods according to their needs. In St. Joseph, the laborers were actually paid, but it was a uniform across-the-board wage. However, there were many problems in this system as implemented. Sheridan, who, in my opinion, is always a little too eager to point out flaws and foibles, calls the United Order an unsuccessful experiment on a social and economic level. He cites several reasons, including that most of the families were young and poor, many settlers were simply unmarried, they had little personal property to start with, and everyone was basically squatting on public land. The order could also be rife with dissension. In Sunset, the community and the order were run by a man named Lot Smith, who Sheridan characterized as running things with an iron fist. Most of the production of the settlement seems to have been reinvested into the settlement itself with little regard for personal needs. One person complained to Apostle Erastus Snow, saying, quote, Living is unnecessarily poor. If a sister wants a little thread, sheeting, buttons, etc. to use in her family, she is told there is none, or, if she gets it, comes frequently with a lecture on economy, end quote. At Brigham City, one of its leaders observed, quote, the saints, as a rule, were very earnest in their endeavors to carry out the principles of the order, but some became dissatisfied and moved away, end quote. Eventually, the United Orders, not to mention the communities themselves, failed, and things were realigned. In St. Joseph, the United Order was kept in place for six years until 1883, when they moved from the family-style system to that of a stewardship plan, where all common property was distributed to individual families. However, even then, the order was dissolved just three years later, and the communal experiment along the Little Colorado came to a final end. Now, as I hope I impressed upon you over the last 25-some-odd minutes, these first Mormon colonies were not the peak of luxurious living. By 1883, the only one that stuck it out, in the words of one settler, was St. Joseph. The rest, Brigham City, Obed, and Sunset, were all abandoned just a few short years after being founded. Now, the main reason is fairly obvious. The Little Colorado River was too wild a river to tame, and was constantly flooding and tearing down the dams and irrigation canals the Mormons threw up. But there were secondary reasons as well. The United Orders as implemented were not working, and the joint enterprises they started up, a dairy, sawmill, gristmill, and tannery 
took away from community resources and their labor pools. And in the case of the dairy and the sawmill, these were located 60 miles away. Sheridan points out that none of the four original settlements ever cultivated more than 350 acres, mainly because of labor shortages. And he blames that on the high percentage of children among the original settlers. For example, a full 50% of St. Joseph's population in 1881 was under the age of 8. Brigham City was eventually abandoned in 1881, while Sunset, with its sandy soil, was gone except for Lot Smith's family by 1883. Obed didn't even last a year, mainly due to the fact that it was built in an unhealthy location where malaria took a heavy toll. Only St. Joseph, which never exceeded 15 to 20 families, managed to take firm root. However, Sheridan does note that, although this experiment failed, quote, the seeds of that failure sprouted into more benign soil, such as the White Mountains and the Salt, Gila, and San Pedro River Valleys, where Mormon pioneers founded communities from Snowflake to St. David, end quote. But those are stories for another time, and quite literally, for another year. As I hinted at last week, we are going to take a short hiatus as Christmas and New Year's are quickly advancing on us. I've decided to take the next three weeks off, to both get through the holidays, and to give myself some more time to write and to read. So, there will be no new episodes on December 26th, January 2nd, and January 9th. But I'll be back starting January 16th as we dive headlong into the 1880s and what it has in store for us. Mainly railroads, Geronimo, fighting over a territorial capital, and the man who tried to con everyone out of most of southern Arizona. Special thanks go out this week to the University of Utah, whose collections I was able to peruse for a lot of the first-hand accounts I quoted today. Also, special thanks to all of you who have taken the time to listen to this humble little podcast as it approaches its second anniversary. I'm your host, David Rookhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Merry Christmas.